Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with uh, New Books in History, and I'm here today with Dr. Donna Strowski. Uh, we're going to be discussing his new book on old authorship controversies. And so this is the, the question that forms the title of the book. So who wrote that is the question here. So thanks for talking to us today, Professor. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, starting off here, uh, can you tell us a bit about your uh, academic background and then how ultimately that kind of led you into this particular uh, kind of unusual topic? Yeah, well, as I remember, I did that about a year ago with a previous interview that you did with me. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I, I might uh, refer the, the listeners to that. Uh, I'll, I'll just give a, a brief synopsis. Um, the I got interested in uh, Russian history very early on. And... Uh, my my father was a history teacher, so I was interested in history because of my father. And then um, my ethnic background is Polish, but um, there there were no Polish history courses taught at the colleges I went to. So uh, Russian history was the closest. The my uh, I went to graduated from the University of California Berkeley in 1967 and then went to San Francisco State for my master's degree in 1970 and then to the Pennsylvania State University where I was fortunate to um, encounter the person I consider my mentor, Sergei Vasilyevich Utekin, who was very methodologically oriented. And up to that point, I was writing papers, but they did not have any methodological rigor to them. I just read a lot and then wrote something on the basis of what I read. But um, he really taught me and all of his students the importance of methodology and critical thinking. From when I was um, about to or make the decision about doing my dissertation. <clears throat> I had done a paper for a seminar of his on um, 16th century Muscovy, Neil Sorsky, and specifically. But that wasn't his uh, main field of concentration. Uh, it was uh, political thought of the 19th to 20th century. He wrote a history of Russian political thought. and. Supposedly, one is supposed to do a dissertation in the expertise of one's uh, dissertation advisor. Uh, and I asked him, would it be okay if I did my dissertation on Neil Sorsky and, and 16th century uh, Russian church? And he said, fine. Uh, there were two problems. <laughs> one, he was not an expert on the, in that area. Uh, and secondly, the library at Penn State couldn't support it. Uh, so another professor at uh, at Penn State who knew Ned Keenan at Harvard said, hey, we got this guy. He wants to do this dissertation on this weird topic. It seems to be something that you know something about. And the library at Harvard could support it. What do you think about our sending him up there? And Keenan said, fine. 
So I went to Harvard for one year um, at first, (laughs) then to the Soviet Union to do a year's research, came back for two years uh, to Harvard, and then another year's research in the Soviet Union, and then came back to Harvard, and I've been there ever since. How I got interested in this particular topic of this book is is really kind of interesting and, and roundabout because of uh, Keenan's uh, book, The Korsky Grozny Apocrypha, in which he challenged the traditional attribution of works to Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, and to uh, Andrei Korsky. I got I got interested in in that entire uh, issue of, of authorship and delve into it pretty deeply. Um, I even found a previously unknown copy of Korpsky's first letter when I was in the Soviet Union, found it in the Lenin Library, Ruka uh, Then, many, some years later, <laughs> um, I was teaching courses on world history, survey courses. And I was preparing a lecture on Tudor and Stuart England. And the, uh, of course, I have to, had to talk about uh, the Shakespeare, uh, about Shakespeare's works. And uh, I actually had an affinity for, for Shakespeare's works when I was a teenager. I had a complete, you know, collected works of Shakespeare volume, huge volume. And I read it. I don't remember if I finished reading the whole thing, but I got pretty far through it. Um, so um, it was something I was excited about. And the I presented the, the traditional view. Uh, one book that um, I came across in which I was cribbing to do my lecture was by Michael Hart on 100 Greatest People. And uh, in, in in history, and and they're just thumbnail sketches that he provides, you know, two three page uh, sketches. But what I liked about the book is that he was analytical in terms of why he placed someone number fifty two rather than sixty seven on the list of hundred greatest people. And in the first edition, he said, "Yeah, the guy from Stratford wrote the plays and poems." And then in the second edition of his book, he changed his mind. And this is highly uh, unusual, especially in regard to Shakespeare, because it's such an emotional topic. And he he said that uh, he was no longer following the crowd on on the question. He had looked into it himself. He had looked at the evidence. And now he was convinced that uh, the Earl of Oxford, 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, had written the Shakespearean corpus. Well, th- this was intriguing to me because um, he's writing a popular book, and it was sure to get criticism from the defenders of the, of the Stratford, the Stratfordians, Stratfordian view, uh, which could only negatively affect sales, I thought, anyway. So this this was 
quite a leap on his part. So I said, well, maybe I should stop following the crowd and start looking into that too. And I, I did, delved into it. And what I began to notice after not too long is that there were parallels between the, um, <clears throat> the Korsky-Grosny uh, authorship controversy and the Shakespeare authorship controversy. But neither side was aware of the other. Um, and I asked Keenan about it. He, he was convinced that the guy from Stratford wrote the, the plays and poems because that's what one of his professors said. Uh, kind of surprising from this neo-skeptic historian, Ned Keenan, but there it is. So again, fast forward many years, and uh, I said, well, you know, I think I will do a comparison of the Korpsky, at least the Korpsky part of the controversy and the Shakespeare part of the controversy, and wrote up a short book, sent it off to Northern Illinois University Press. And instead of uh, rejecting it out of hand, they said, well, you know, we have, is there a market for this book? <laughs> and I had to admit to myself anyway, no, <laughs> it's not much <laughs> of a market <laughs> for comparing Shakespeare with Korpsky. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, in, in the process of teaching world history, I had come across other controversies like, well, Moses and the Pentateuch and Confucius and, and the Analects. So it wasn't too hard to put together uh, a few other case studies. Um, so I revised the book proposal uh, and had, at that point, had eight chapters, eight case studies, uh, reduced the part on Shakespeare to a chapter, reduced the part on Korpsky to a chapter, and then I had to write uh, the other six chapters. Uh, it was fun. It was fun to do. Uh, I learned a lot in the process. And uh, as I was uh, getting close to a complete draft, a um, colleague of mine, Hugh Olmsted, said, well, are you including Ossian? And I had thought about it. Now, Ossian is a um, series of three works, a trilogy by James McPherson, Scottish poet of the 18th century, had a huge impact uh, on uh, literature and culture in the latter half of the 18th, 19th century. But I did not include it at first because I thought the, the, the controversies resolved. He, he had, did, was not translating from a uh, Gaelic manuscript that he had found. Uh, instead, he was creating uh, on his own uh, this, um, a translation from what he claimed was this Gaelic manuscript. So it, it was a work of creativity. And I think if he had just passed it off, that if, if he had said, look, I'm, I'm making this up, it's informed by my knowledge of Gaelic uh, folklore. But I, I, and, and there are others who did it. Thomas Chat Chatterton did, 
did the same thing in England for for uh, medieval uh, English uh, poetry. Instead, he said he had this manuscript. So people said, well, where's the manuscript? We want to see the manuscript. Because he wasn't presenting the Gaelic. He was presenting the translation. Uh, well, he didn't have the manuscript. And nonetheless, the Ossian trilogy was just, uh, it, it's difficult to understate the uh, immense influence that it had. Uh, so because of uh, Hughes' comment, I decided to look back at the Ossian and McPherson issue and found out it's, it's still very much alive in, in different form now, in the last few years, the last few decades. So in it went. So I have nine case studies. I have an introduction, nine case studies, uh, and an afterward, uh, uh, Amy Ferranto and, and Christine Warbetz at Northern Illinois University Press. They said, go ahead, do it. And I wrote it up. And they sent it out to reviewers. The reviewers liked it, and now it's published. End of story. Uh, well, it may not quite be the end of the story, but uh, uh, so I thought uh, the best thing we could do here is start with those those points that you closed with, and then maybe go back and and look at uh, you know specific cases, specific parts of those cases that illustrate them. Uh, so I'm quoting you here. Uh, one of the, the points you concluded there in the afterward was, you know, read the text in question. Don't assume you know what it says based on what other people say it says. And so uh, could you, uh, you know, lay out where you take some of the best examples of either succeeding or failing to, to do that uh, from the, the different controversies you discussed? Sure. Um, yeah, this, this is uh, a... A number of years ago, there was um, a, a uh, journalist who wrote up an article called Bullcrit. And what he was pointing out is uh, people at cocktail parties in New York, Los Angeles, you know, wherever they have these cocktail parties for literary types, would often uh, expound at great lengths on a book that they had never read. And they were basing it on, on reviews of the book. And that became bullcrit. Um, there is, to a certain extent, uh, a tendency um, among scholars, some scholars, not all, to be sure, um, to kind of cut corners, let's say, not read a text that they are talking about or even writing about or not reading it all. It's kind of a scholarly version of bullcrit. The when, but I, I, I find that it is absolutely essential to go back to the text numerous times, double check, triple check, quadruple check, because we, we, it's, it's so easy to overlook something. And even in describing it, we may be just, just misdescribing it so that when somebody else hears our description, they get the wrong impression. And then they go off <laughs> on their own uh, 
you know, make their own conclusions. So, yes, when, in this case, when, when you have texts uh, that one is trying to ascertain who the author is, it is, it, it is essential to read those texts um, and not reach conclusions based on uh, extra textual uh, considerations uh, only. So the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, um, I don't know how many people have actually read <laughs> the Pentateuch all the way through. From beginning to end, I haven't. I have. <laughs> Good for you. That's that's wonderful. My wife has, <laughs> um, but I do think I'm pretty familiar with it. I I come at it numerous times from different uh, perspectives, uh, and everything that I come across about the Pentateuch, I I do go and I have my copy of Revised Standard Versions of the Bible right here, right at my, uh, within reaching distance. And I refer to it uh, because it's such an essential um, basic text, not only the Pentateuch, but the rest of the Hebrew Bible and, and, and the New Testament as well. Shakespeare canon, again, it's huge. And uh, I haven't read the whole thing from start to finish. When I was a teenager, I plowed through as much as I could, remembering very little. But everything that I wrote about, I did check uh, and and make sure that it, it's accurate. Um, the correspondence with uh, of Rashid al Din, uh, which is one of the chapters, uh, Rashid al Din being. Uh, the vizier in the Ilkhanate in the 13th century, a uh, question about whether he, he wrote the Compendium of Chronicles, uh, Jamial Tavark, or, and um, the collection of letters that's attributed to him. Okay, the, the, the Compendium of Chronicles has been published, and it's been published in the uh, in the original, it's been published in in uh, Russian. It's been published in English, so that's that's pretty accessible. The correspondence has been published, but only piecemeal or not in total, uh, based because what the editors in each case had was access only to imperfect manuscripts that only had, well, a majority of the letters, but not all of the letters. So the, the English translation is probably the least complete. The Russian is more complete. I um, have, so in that sense, I have not read every one of the letters that's in the complete, most complete collection. Uh, but I have uh, a good sense of what those letters uh, are about. Uh, I've read every one that I have access to, and certainly any anything that came up in in, in the discussion uh, in the controversy, um, 
I was able to check. So is there something in one of the other letters that I did not include and, and don't know about? Yeah, that's possible. Um, although the probability is low uh, in that case. So those, those in, I, I suppose I should have said insofar as possible, uh, read the text in question. You know, if it's a short text, relatively short, like Analex, uh, yeah, that, that you can do that in, a, in an afternoon. Uh, but if you, are going, if you are going to talk about uh, a text, then you should have at least read the parts that you're going to talk about. Do, uh, do you think that uh, are, we, are any of these controversies in particular, like, does one stand out to you as a lot, a, a lot of what was being disagreed about resulted from somebody failing to actually read the text? Is, is there one that kind of fills the bill there? Um, I don't know if it's so much failure to read the text. One, one thing that comes to mind is the, you know, the Abelard and Heloise controversy. And, you know, even the most prominent scholars, the, 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 those who were the, the expert of the experts <laughs> type of scholars, um, I wondered what exactly were they reading? <laughs> and, and here I'm talking about what I, I call uh, age one, the, the first set of letters um, that uh, were discovered in the, in the 13th century. And the, the scholarship, the scholars, um, seem to have this attitude that, well, possibly Abelard wrote Heloise's letters. The, the, the letters that are attributed to Heloise in the correspondence he said, well, you know, maybe Abelard wrote them. And it was, uh, you know, this, I think there was only one scholar who kind of almost implied that, well, maybe Heloise wrote Abelard's letters as well as her own. No one seriously would consider that possibility. And, and, and I'm not proposing that either. However, if you, well, I'll say this, I read the entire correspondence all the way through, and I was very impressed with Heloise, the letters that are attributed to Heloise. And I, so I did not see any way that the person who was writing the Abelard, Abelardian letters could have written the Heloisean letters. I did see a way that the person who wrote the Heloisian letters could have written the Abelardian letters. I, um, I, probability is, at least for AH1, the first uh, uh, set, set of, of correspondence, that Abelard wrote those, the letters attributed to him, and Eloise wrote the letters attributed to her. But her, her letters stylistically are wonderful. I, you know, I just sometimes I just read them for pleasure <laughs> because uh, they're just delightful, um, playful, uh, imaginative uh, use of chiasmus, uh, 
And Abelard's come off as stentorian and ponderous and full of, of himself. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I could see how Eloise might write his, his part to kind of poke fun at him. Uh, but again, I'm not suggesting that, not uh, proposing that at all. So, so, yeah, I wonder, well, what are they reading? If they think that Heloise didn't write her letters <laughs> and that Abelard might have written them, they're, they're, not, they're not reading with, with the same frame of reference that I am, uh, these, the, this correspondence. Uh, you're, uh, I mean, uh, we may, you know, if you need to reference back to that, uh, you know, basic first point about just read the text. Uh, but I'm wondering if maybe we should move to the, your second point here, which is, and I'm quoting you again, keep an open mind, avoid premature cognitive closure. Uh, so could you uh, give us a few examples of, of, uh, uh, where in these controversies that has either happened or not happened? Yeah, I think I think with the um, the secret gospel, there, there's a number of people who have written about it, made up their mind beforehand. At least this is my impression that Morton Smith had forged this letter of Clement of Alexandria, or that that. Um, Someone else had forged it, and 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 Morton Smith, you know, kind of was duped by that. But mainly that Morton Smith was the forger. Um, the, this is uh, why would they do that? Uh, well, w- when one is dealing with biblical text, and 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 I should tell your listeners that if they're not familiar with the story. Um, Morton Smith was a scholar at Columbia University, and in 1958, um, he went to Marasaba Monastery near Jerusalem and uh, to, to work on some of their old manuscripts and printed books. And he came across on, in the end paper of a uh, 17th century printed edition of the Letters of Ignatius a handwritten letter purporting to be from Clement of Alexandria, early third century, second century, early third century AD uh, bishop, in which he's talking to uh, a, a disciple of his, Theodore, and he's telling his disciple, don't listen to the Carpocratians. What they're saying is wrong. Um, they got a copy of the secret gospel of Mark, uh, by trickery, but they are misreporting what is in it. They are misrepresenting what is in it. And I'm going to tell you what accurately what, what is in it. And then he goes on to describe a Lazarus-type story in which Jesus comes and raises a young man from the dead. Uh, this excerpt in the letter of the secret gospel of Mark just uh, set a lot of people uh, off in open rejection. No, that couldn't be. There could not be any such thing. Um, Morton Smith must have made this up. Why? Because he hates Christianity. 
Well, there's no evidence he hates Christianity. He made it up because he was denied tenure at Brown University. I kid you not. These are, these are they're what they're, some of the, the declarations are. Well, no, he wasn't denied tenure at Brown. He had a one-year appointment. Uh, and there were, as far as we know, there was no indication that he would continue get a tenured position as a result of that one-year appointment. As we know, there, there are lots of these one-year non-tenure track appointments uh, going around. Besides, by that point, <laughs> uh, he had already become a tenured professor at Columbia University. So <laughs> even if he had been angry, which there is no evidence uh, that he didn't get tenure at Brown when he wasn't up for tenure, uh, it, it, it makes no sense. So there, it, it seemed to me that there, there was this creation of all sorts of uh, innuendos about uh, that Morton Smith was homosexual and he was pushing a homosexual agenda by writing this book. There is no, first of all, we have no evidence what Morton Smith's sexual <coughs> inclinations were. Um, and there, they are reading into the text something that isn't there because they are afraid it might be there. Uh, and there was even one scholar who claimed that Morton Smith was trying to bring down, bring about the downfall of Christianity by forging this letter. I was like, really? That, then Christianity must be on really flimsy foundations. <laughs> If forging a, a letter from Clement of Alexandria could bring about the downfall. Um, but it, so the wild, wild accusations. And, it, and it's only because they don't stop to really read the text itself, to analyze the text, as Morton Smith did. He, Morton Smith spent, well, close to 15 years analyzing this one short letter. Um, he, and, and I must admit that when Smith's book, uh, Clement of Alexandria and the Secret Gospel According to Mark came out in 1973, I read it. Um, and I was really impressed. This was when I was working on my dissertation and I was so impressed. I said, this is the way to do scholarship. <laughs> it's thorough, exhaustive. He asks all sorts of questions. Later, I found out that he had um, come up to uh, Harvard on several occasions to discuss this letter with Helmut Kester, who was one of the leading, some people considered him the leading scholar on early Christian literature. And Helmut Kester was convinced that the letter was authentic. Uh, so whether or not the excerpt that Clement quotes is actually from a secret gospel of Mark, that's another question entirely. But the, the letter itself passes all the tests for authenticity. Uh, now, to be sure, it's an 18th century handwritten copy. We have no other letters of Clement of Alexandria extant. But we do know from other sources that the, 
he wrote letters and, and they, they are um, referred to uh, by other Christian fathers. So this, this, this was a tremendous find uh, if, 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 if indeed it is authentic um, by Morton Smith. But there was an attempt to denigrate, to, to uh, defame Morton Smith and accuse him of all sorts of things that there just was no evidence for uh, because they were afraid that whether, whether or not it was going to bring about the downfall of Christianity, that it was saying things <clears throat> that were different from their conception of Christianity. Uh, so they were going to uh, uh, attack it from the start. The, uh, another example is the, is, the, is the Korpsky question and uh, the Korpsky attributions. And here I have more direct experience with colleagues of mine who are convinced that Keenan is wrong, that Korpsky wrote everything and translated everything that's attributed to him. I was thinking, well, how could how can I discuss uh, in a uh, collegi collegial manner uh, with colleagues of mine who it's not clear that they actually have read the, uh, the works attributed to Korpsky, but even if they have, they, they, they do see it through a different lens. So how do I discuss my doubts? Uh, about the traditional attribution. And that's when I came across, this, this actually was a, a um, scientist who was interested in the Shakespeare controversy. And he wrote a book uh, analyzing the Shakespeare controversy on the basis of Bayesian probabilities. I said, well, that's, I think that will work for discussing the Korpsky, that you don't you, you don't have to say that it's 100% one way and 0% the other. You can say it's 80%, 20%, 60, 40. You know, uh, you can give a probability uh, estimate of uh, what, what you think the likelihood is of any, you know, particular aspect of the question. Uh, the, uh, and I use that as... I wrote that up as an article and used it as a basis for, uh, for the chapter in an attempt to get people to keep an open mind, to uh, at least consider the possibility, if only in a Bayesian probability sense, that maybe it isn't totally one way or the other. Are there any controversies that you discuss in the book? I'm still kind of on the subject of keeping an open mind here, where you know, you had an idea about what you thought about it beforehand, but then reading the text and reading the, the scholarly back and forth actually caused you to change your mind over the course of reading about it. Yeah, well, there this is um, the, the, the it took me a, a, a while uh, with the Analects of Confucius. OK, the, the, the you know, the power of the mindset <laughs> uh, is very strong and it just overrides what we see you know uh you know the the old old saw is uh, uh i'll see it when i believe it 
Yeah, you you don't see things until you start to believe that it's possible that they're there. And and the and the, the Analex was one of those where you know I was reading, I wrote up dra- drafts of the chapters, revised drafts of the chapters, and it took me a while to finally comprehend what Michael Hunter of uh, Yale University was was writing about was was saying. Okay, so everyone knows. <laughs> Here's the mindset that uh, Confucius wrote the Analects, okay, except for the parts that he didn't write, right? Um, well, what parts didn't he, did he not write? Well, the parts where he talks about himself are the references are to Confucius. Confucius was a a, um, a mild mannered person, for example. Well, Confucius wouldn't write that about himself, presumably. So it had to be his disciples. And also, there are parts in it that don't uh, reference the master. And the master said, uh, they, they will reference a disciple. A disciple said, I, I analyzed how many of these. I think there are 80% of our present analects have the master said as, as the beginning of it. And another 20% have these various other versions, very various other chapters that presumably Confucius was not the author of. Uh, and then mm, early 2000s, uh, E. Bruce uh, Brooks and his wife, Takeo, wrote a, uh, a thorough analysis, I mean, just in-depth uh, analysis of every passage of, of the, of the Analects. And they concluded that only, um, I think, something like 16 lines from chapter four can be dated to the time of Confucius. All the rest <laughs> uh, of it uh, was, was accretion added on later. And, uh, later. and, and they, they even uh, provide a, uh, uh, a kind of, discussion of when certain parts of it were added on. Okay, so that most extreme view, only 16 lines from chapter four, uh, date to the time of Confucius, all else is accretion, versus the notion that 80% of it was Confucius, as the master said, and the other 20% was accretion. Okay, but that presumes that there was a text. Yeah, wasn't there a text? Well, according to Michael Hunter, not before the early Han Dynasty. There may have been, you know, scattered, um, you know, particular sayings, as the master said, Confucius said, but there was no text. And there was not even an oral text. In other words, what Michael Hunter was saying was in uh, the uh, uh, early 2nd century BC, someone sat down and wrote the Analects. You know, and and it is when one has been, has has been everything that one reads, everything (laughs) And I've taught the Analects in, in my courses. 
and one has the notion there was a text early on, at least dating to the time of Confucius, there was something to know there wasn't anything. There's no reference to the Analects before the early Han Dynasty. Uh, there, you know, not all scholars <laughs> except Hunter's view. Uh, but it, it is very, I will say this, it, it is very deeply grounded in the source evidence. Uh, so keeping an open mind, maybe it, it, in some cases, it's attaining an open mind because my, my mind was closed and it, and it took me a long time to kind of wrap my mind around the idea that there was no text. Uh, before then. In a way, that kind of relates to uh, an additional point you made, which is that we should avoid trying to make the evidence conform to some already existing interpretive framework. Uh, you know, so assuming that there is a text uh, would, would kind of fit the uh, your example there. Do you, do you have any other uh, you know, good examples from the various controversies of where it looked to you like, uh, you know, people are kind of have these uh, pretty critical commitments to some interpretive framework that then dictate how the controversy is going to go. Well, the Bible is full of, I mean, b- biblical studies are <laughs> full, full of examples uh, uh, of that because, you know, people are taught the Bible very early on <laughs> in their upbringing and, and that kind of gets set in stone so anything anything new must be wrong or anything different uh must be wrong um the well uh, well it happened to me with with mcpherson you know i i was convinced that you know the 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 austin controversy had been settled long ago and lo and behold it hadn't but it, it had revived in a different form which was that McPherson was, to a certain extent, channeling the uh, Scottish Highland Gaelic oral traditions. Uh, he was there. He was raised in the Scottish Highlands. He, 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 he was a poet, <laughs> uh, other, you know, other than with, with Ossian, the Ossian trilogy. So there was a certain sensitivity to things he, he, of, of language. Um, so the, 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 re, the, the revival of the controversy has to do with, well, let's put aside the prevarication. <laughs> let's put aside the fact that he was deceptive. Okay. Um, is there anything of value in what he wrote, yeah, given that this is a, a poetic rendition and so forth. And there, there are scholars who say, yes, indeed, um, there is. And we should not dismiss it uh, because, you know, just because of, of, of the, the whole controversy of the late 18th, early 19th century. And one of the uh, uh, parallel examples is the Carmina Gardelica, um, fellow by the name of Carmichael. In the 19th century, to be sure, about 100 years later, went around 
in the Scottish Highlands collecting uh, oral traditions, folklore, prayers, uh, just just anything he could. Um, multi-volume compendium. And you can say, oh, well, it, it does not have scholarly rigor. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but that's not the, the, what he was about. He was about, Carmichael, was about collecting what was available at the time. This is late 19th century. And it is a valuable source. Now, present day scholars can apply skepticism and methodological rigor and so forth to what Carmichael collected. But if he hadn't collected them, we wouldn't have them because these are oral traditions that would have just disappeared. So the same kind mutatis mutandis is applied to McPherson. He, in fictional form, to be sure, uh, was able to preserve some of these oral traditions in the Ossian cycle uh, that he published. So, yeah, it's it, uh, uh, one, I, I think, one of the reasons, that, for example, that I included the, the Morton Smith's Secret Gospel chapter is because I wanted to revisit it. Um, I was convinced, you know, Morton Smith, one of my scholarly heroes, I wanted to revisit once again, make sure that I wasn't overlooking something, make sure that someone wasn't coming up with uh, evidence or argument that would have been uh, raised doubts uh, about whether Smith forged the, uh, the, uh, this letter. <clears throat> and, and there are certain parallels with McPherson in the sense that McPherson, uh, McPherson intended to deceive by saying he was translating from a Gaelic manuscript. Uh, did Morton Smith intend to deceive? Well, he was accused of intending to deceive, but they're just Again, after having looked at the art, gone through all the arguments, the evidence again, I just don't see um, that he intended to deceive anyone. Um, when he was doing, when Morton Smith was writing chapters of his book, uh, he sent out drafts to a number of different scholars to get their feedback and included their feedback. Much of it, most of it was negative. Well, you know, I don't see anything wrong with your methodology, but I don't agree. <laughs> I don't agree that this letter is authentic. But they wouldn't provide any justification for, for, uh, for that. So, um, you know, there, there, there are some scholars who think it's enough for them to voice their opinion. Well, I think that this is not the case. Yeah. Why? <laughs> well, because I say so. <laughs> because I'm the mom and I say so. Uh, well, that's not good enough. Uh, you have to provide your, your reasons and, and base it on, uh, on evidence. 
That is something we tell undergraduates with some frequency, so I suppose it's not too much to ask of uh, professional scholars either. Uh, in in theory, yeah. uh, you, you probably want to be careful when when approaching a a established scholar or even non-established scholar, uh, and uh, you know, don't want to accuse them of not doing what they tell their undergraduates. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, you made a, a pretty interestingly phrased uh, distinction um, in the book that I, I was, thought would be useful to, to hear some more about. Uh, that's, that's the distinction you made between the broad brush strokes and the short brush strokes. And you've, advised us to when in doubt favor the short ones so could you elaborate on that some yeah well i i think the 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 sholokov controversy is the one that comes to mind immediately where uh the the whole okay mikhail sholokov was well nobel prize winner 1965 mainly uh for Quiet Dawn, Tiki Dawn, or Quiet Flows the Dawn, as it's often translated. The from the very first appearance in serial form of the novel uh, in a, in a journal, there were accusations that he had plagiarized. Uh, people were phone calls were being made to the editor of the journal saying. The old woman will come with proof that Sholokov plagiarized this work. That was um, one of his patrons, Serafimovich, and and three other scholars wrote a a letter in Pravda accusing the the doubters, the skeptics of uh, anti-Soviet activity, basically, which is not a good thing to be accused of in the pages of Pravda. Um, and then eventually Stalin came and, and said, no, this, this, he, he did not plagiarize. Okay, so that, that set the controversy at rest for a while. And then it was revived uh, in the 19... 19- 70s at a point when Sholokhov uh, had come out against uh, two dissidents who were on trial. And the people who favored the dissidents were upset at that. And they also were upset at other things Sholokhov had done, which seemed to be um, too <laughs> cozy with the Soviet authorities. They, they felt he he was more a uh, a hatchet man, <laughs> basically, uh, for the government. And so um, several people revived all of the previous accusations that uh, Shalikov had, had plagiarized, including Solzhenitsyn. And the, uh, but the, these accusations were based on circumstantial what we would call circumstantial evidence. And, and that is, Sholokhov started publishing this when he was 23. And many people, many prominent, Roy Medvedev, for example, many prominent uh, historians, literary scholars, consider 
Quieton, one of the greatest works of world literature. Just, um, so how could a 23-year-old write one of the greatest works of world literature? Also, the book was sympathetic to the Don Cossacks, but Sholokhov was not a Don Cossack. In fact, he was, he headed as a teenager, he, he was on requisition squads for the Bolsheviks that requisition grain and other things from the, the, the Cossacks. If anything, he would have been anti-Don Cossack. So how could someone who was, and, and besides, he had a, a very limited education, you know, only a, f- a few years of, uh, of uh, elementary school. So how could someone who limited education, anti-Don Cossack, write one of the most brilliant works of world literature that was sympathetic to the Cossacks? Uh, Well, there happens to be another writer by the name of Krukov, who was working on a book on the Don Cossacks, who was a Don Cossack who had written extensively he, before and during World War I, uh, who, who had been at the, um, uh, the places where the, the, the places described in, in the Quiet Don where battles occurred, where, where there's descriptions of battles. Krukov was there. Okay. Coincidentally, Nieslu China is what the skeptics are saying, not by chance. So um, the, the, because Sholokhov was and, and eventually heading requisition squads, the argument is he, after Krukov's death in 1920, Sholokhov got a hold of the manuscript that would eventually become the Quiet Dawn. He reworked it. He's, there was... According to this narrative, scenario, he, he reworked it uh, and added on because the, the quiet dawn goes beyond 1920, goes beyond the death of Krukov. So things had to be added on. And the skeptics point out, yes, but those later parts are not as well written as the earlier parts. Well, that's subjective. So all of these kind of circumstantial uh, uh, type of, you know, it isn't possible for a 23-year-old. He had limited education. He, you know, uh, was anti-Don Cossack. Uh, seemed to indicate that he had somehow gotten a hold of somebody else's work, possibly Krukov's, and passed it off as his own. On the other hand, this style metrics, the uh, computer analysis of the style of Quiet Flows the Don with Sholokhov's other writings, with those of Krukov, almost consistently favor Sholokhov. It doesn't totally exclude the possibility that Krukov wrote uh, Quiet Flows the Don, but it does favor Sholokhov. So are those people who are accusing Sholokhov of plagiarism defaming an innocent person? The, the, the short brushstrokes the stylistic, computer stylistic analysis. And again, given, you know, they're, they're, uh, that's, that's not a perfect science either. But 
on one hand, you have kind of general uh, broad brushstrokes, oh, someone so young, someone who was anti-Don Cossack, so forth and so on. And then you have a stylistic analysis of comparison. And the most, based on the short brushstrokes, the most likely person to have written Quiet Flows the Dawn is Sholokhov. Okay, so the the counter, the counter counter to that is something Medvedev suggested was maybe we are underestimating how much Sholokhov revised Krukov's work. This is this is an attempt to you know synthesize, get, get the, the out of the thesis antithesis, create a synthesis in which indeed Sholokhov got a draft of Krukov's work, reworked it extensively, maybe with help from Serafimovich and others. Uh, that's also been suggested. Other Soviet scholars helped him with it. Um, and that in that reworking, Sholokhov added his own style. <laughs> and that's why the computer analyses come out in his favor. Uh, <clears throat> all right. This, this is okay. This is where the sh the broad brushstrokes and the short brushstrokes uh, are in conflict, and one wonders uh, if if Sholokhov had led a different life <laughs> once he became uh, prominent. Would this whole controversy have been revived? That is, if he had been sympathetic to the dissidents. Um, would people like Solzhenitsyn uh, have raised the issue so ardently uh, again? Right now in Russia, it, it, it's a big deal. It, it, I've compared it with the, the Shakespeare controversy in in, in, in the West. Uh, it's it's that fiercely argued, uh, fiercely <laughs> and thoroughly researched, and everything. Uh, uh, gone over because it's it's one of those you know there there are certain um <clears throat> pillars of the, the the that our worldviews are based on one of these is that the guy from stratford wrote <laughs> the works attributed to shakespeare and if anybody challenges that you know attack them um, there, no, there isn't any uh, secret gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark we have is the gospel of Mark. Anybody who says different, attack them. It's the same kind of thing with with uh, with Sholokhov. There are those who say no. Uh, he 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 wrote "Quiet Flows the Dawn," and those who are attacking or, or defaming him. There are others who say. Just as as adamantly, <laughs> um, he couldn't have written it, uh, and uh, he plagiarized it. I was uh, I was thinking when uh, you made that distinction between the broad and the short brushstrokes of one of my personal favorite all time uh, uh, articles I've ever read, which is uh, Charles Halperin's article where he weasels. Uh, without an answer to the question of whether or not Ivan's uh, henchmen carried dogs had there on their horses based on like three pieces of evidence, I think it was. 
And that just struck me as a good example of what you were talking about with the short brush strokes, like being kind of really careful and reading the evidence that's there really closely. Uh, and, and, uh, and so on. I just, I, I don't know, is, is that, uh, is that kind of what you're, what you're after there? Well, I don't want to, uh, start up any controversy with Charles <laughs> during this talk, but, um, I, I wonder in approaching this book, I did not want to take sides in, in any of these controversies. Um, I, I wasn't pushing a, a particular point. I certainly have my own point of view, but I didn't, I, what I wanted to do was to pre- present the various arguments and, and the evidence as fairly and accurately as I could. Um, to be sure, I do express my opinion when I think someone is making a fallacious argument or is misrepresenting uh, some evidence. But that that's not the goal of the book. The goal of the book is is not to convince one or another writer wrote a particular piece of work, uh, but to introduce the topic so that uh, other people can pursue it further. Uh, and the when I <laughs> was a, a graduate student at Penn State, uh, Utekin, uh had one of his uh, seminar sessions outside on lovely spring day. And just off the cuff, you know, somebody, one of the students asked him about the, the Slovo-Apoco-Egative controversy. It was not a topic of the, of the seminar at all, but they were just interested. You know, what's all this about Slovo-Apoco-Egative, the tale of Igor's campaign? And Utekin proceeded to outline in great detail, very methodically, what the different arguments are, what the evidence is. This and that, presenting each side fairly, as far as we could tell, didn't try to push one view or another on us, but we felt informed and and we felt empowered by that. Rather than his saying, oh, uh, yes, it's completely authentic, or no, it's a complete forgery of the 18th century, he presented, he let us decide. He gave us the information we needed to pursue the topic further without a preconceived notion as to what, what is the answer that we were supposed to find uh, uh, in it. And, and I took that as my model for the, the chapters in this book, uh, perhaps not always as successfully as I would have liked. Uh, but I... I for a book of this type, I think I think it's important to uh, not argue a case, not be a lawyer, not be an advocate for one side or the other, but to uh, allow the 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 readers the the idea, you know, is that someone who thinks, for example, someone who thinks that uh, William of Stratford wrote the plays attributed to Shakespeare, plays and poems and so forth. Um, And someone who thinks the Earl of Oxford wrote it, or William Neville or or Christopher Marlowe, could read the chapter and not feel offended, not feel that I had misrepresented their points of view or any uh, of the evidence. I have heard back from some 
people already. Uh, one scholar who thinks it's William Neville uh, uh, said that I'm wrong to say it was the Earl of Oxford. Well, I didn't say it was the Earl of Oxford in the in the chapter. I presented it as a, a the the views on the Earl of Oxford as kind of summing up the views of every. I couldn't discuss all fifty nine claimants to. Uh, having been the author, so I, I took one as representative uh, uh, of all the others because most of the same characteristics that are attributed to Neville or Elizabeth I or any of the other claimants, the Earl of Oxford all, also had. Um, so other th other than that, I I I think I did as fairly a good job as I could. It, it was difficult, probably, and the most difficult chapter was the one on, on Morton Smith, because I just was not seeing the, the validity of the arguments and the evidence being proposed. And in some cases, there was no evidence that was being proposed that he had forged it. Uh, so the, the, that, that, was, that, that was a difficult chapter. Since we're uh, pretty much out of uh, out of time here, maybe maybe one more uh, question. Um, what do you think? You know, you, you focused really at the end on what are the lessons here for for authorship controversies uh, specifically. But I you know, I found myself when I was reading through your your concluding points, wondering about how they apply just to you know historical study more generally. Right? I mean, obviously. You know, not going in to look at the evidence with too much in the way of preconceived, uh, you know, paradigms, things like that is uh, is important. Is there is there anything you could say that that you think this book sheds light on as far as just historical investigations, generally speaking? Um, yeah, that it's it's really important to I think to get out of our silos. <laughs> okay. You know. Uh, Jack Hexter many years ago wrote about tunnel history, <laughs> and that's you know, tunnel history with, within a uh, an area of study focusing only on on social history or only on military history, uh, without being aware of what was going on in the parallel tunnels, <laughs> uh, and and with authorship controversies, there's a a problem of silo studies where people are focused only on their own uh, controversy and not aware of parallels going on elsewhere. The result is they will make statements that, if applied in general terms, make no sense at all. For example, the, um, the, the accusation that by by Stratfordians, that those who don't think William of Stratford, who they call William Shakespeare, wrote the plays and poems and so forth, are snobs because they don't think a commoner could write plays uh, in in Tudor England. Okay, well. Let's apply that to Russian literature before, say, Maxim Gorky. What examples of commoners do we have 
who wrote novels, you know, in, in, in the 19th century. I can't think of any. To, to say that a commoner can't write these kinds of works, plays about the court, does not make one a snob. Uh, and it certainly would not apply, you know, in other uh, fields of study. But the, the, the tendency is to be so focused. Another example is, is Heloise, you know, that I mentioned AH1, but there's also a second collection of uh, letters that was discovered in the late 15th century that recently uh, constant uh, muse from Australia has, has argued that these are by Heloise and Abelard. And one of the defenders of Muse's argument is that, well, to say that Heloise didn't write these letters is to deny her woman's voice. You know, you're, well, all right, let's, let's say that it wasn't Heloise, but it was another woman who wrote the Moulier, the, the women's part of AH2 correspondence. By attributing it to Heloise, aren't you denying her woman's voice? Uh, so at times, arguments are made that are very, um, that when, when placed in a broader context, just make no sense at all. They're, they're scoring points in, in the controversy that they're, in the debate that they're involved in, in the particular one. But at, at a larger uh, uh, general principle level, it just doesn't work. Well, I think that uh, the mandate that we should read more widely is something we can all agree on. <laughs> yeah, and, and read things that one doesn't agree with. You know, there's, there's tendency to confirmation bias. I only right. read what, what already agrees with me. Right. Well, I think we probably better uh, knock off there, Don. So uh, thanks for giving us a rundown. Uh, that was quite an interesting book. I have a feeling I'm going to be going back to that one uh, here and there. Well, thanks, Aaron. I, I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for being with us. Take care. Oh.